The Guardian. On Location, a series of podcasts on literature and landscape. What is water in the eyes of water? Loose, inquisitive, fragile, anxious, a wave, a winged form splitting up into sharp glances. What is the sound of water? After the rain stops, you can hear the sea washing rid of the world's increasing complexity, making it perfect again, out of perfect sand. Oscillation, endlessly shaken into an entirely new structure. What is the depth of water from which time has been rooted out? The depth is the strength of water. It can break glass or sink steel, treading drowners inwards down. What does it taste of? Water deep in its own world, steep shafts, warm streams, coal, salt, cod, weed, dispersed outflows and fly-tipping. And the sun and its reflection throwing two shadows. What is the beauty of water? Sky is its beauty. Alice Oswald, poet. I like the idea of water as a kind of rememberer or recorder of whatever goes on beside it. It is a kind of reflector. It reflects images, and I think it also somehow records sounds. The Dart River, Devon. I'm reminded of a letter that a scientist wrote to The Guardian after there'd been some big row about homeopathy saying, I'm not an advocate for homeopathy, I don't know very much about it, but what I do know is that we haven't even begun to understand the structure of water. What is entirely possible is that water has memory. Yeah, I have read that water has memory. That was, that was quite an influence on the writing of Dart. There is that sense when you, when you come upon water in a, in a dry landscape that it's got a kind of retention of thought. For me, the kind of words I, I use and look out for when I'm writing are sort of animation and energy. I'm looking for what, what is the eye of a landscape, what is the, the sort of changeable part that brings it alive. And it's always water. I mean, here there is a tide that not only affects this riverbed, you can see the mud, I mean, there's a sort of... I don't know what, a hundred yards of mud until you get the little starved river at the bottom. But there's also, I now have the sense of everything being tidal. You actually, it is actually true that there are tides in fields and woods that are also, because they have water levels, they're also going up and down with the river. So when I come here, I just get this, you know, either you get this kind of thin, sucked-in feeling of the whole landscape having its water at its lowest ebb, or this extraordinary brimming, full, floating feeling where, you know, the leaves are full of water and the grass is full of water. And so I've really come to see everything as a tide now. And even the seasons, you know, we're just now, sort of, the trees have just got all their leaves. And that, I've been watching it, you know, day by day, moving like a tide through the woods. So, yeah, for me, that is the animate or thinking part of the landscape. It's the way the, way the water levels are just changing.
what draws me to write about rivers rather than lakes is the movement. And to me, the movement is a kind of language. And so I have quite a... I quite like the thing of translating, sort of exchanging between um, sound and sight, so that for me, the way those ripples there, you can see that that would be a sound if you were up closer. The way the light is moving as the water moves, you'd be able to hear that if your ear was up close. So I'm constantly looking with my eye and trying to translate that into sound, um, because I think the two are very connected. And quite often you can see sounds that you wouldn't necessarily be able to hear. So would we be able to walk here when the tide is up? You can't get the right way round. I sometimes time it wrong and come back quite wet. I mean, a very full moon would be right up to the edge there. Every night I walk this way, the moony river paths, watching with a growing eye the rifts and rags of moths. O oh, gentle moths that follow me, I'll let you hear my mind concerning things that brush up close and vanish like the wind. Every night the sea runs in over a slum of sand. It takes all week to watch the tide and several years to know the wind. I put my foot down on the grass I thought it was a path, but first it sighed and then it sank. I wish I was a white-winged moth. I wish I was that whirring flutter way out over the shaking reeds, between the breezes and myself. Hard to say which would be lighter. I do a lot of swimming in this river when the tide's up. It's quite a muddy swim always, but I go from there and even more I swim in the dark, which we'll get to in a minute. And I've even managed to find an old fiberglass rowing boat this year, which someone's mending for me. So I'm going to spend a lot of the summer rowing. bobbing around. Swimming is great because then you really take it slowly. You're at eye level with ducks, birds, all sorts of things. Um, always that little element of fear, which I quite like, because uh, you don't quite know that sometimes in the summer I swim right over the river where it's quite wide. There's a moment in the middle where the current is really quite strong, especially if you've timed it wrong. It's very like flying swimming, isn't it? It's a lovely sensation. I think when you walk, you're very, you're very kind of segmented into the jolt of your walking. But when you swim... It's just, it's much more, well, it's fluid, isn't it? Your body has a kind of liquid movement. And so I find I can have, I can have a different kind of thought when I'm swimming. When I'm walking, I have these very um, sort of marked out thoughts. But when I'm swimming, much more impressionistic. Probably quite good for me, I think, because I tend to be quite too pedantic in my thinking. This walk, I've just become completely addicted to it because it starts on the River Harborne, which is a sort of well-behaved little river going out towards the Dart and coming to meet them both is the sea. So there's a point a bit further on where you've got three different forces of water all coming together. 
and um, there's something about walking from this small river towards a bigger river via the sea that performs for me a kind of action very similar to writing a poem. I think poems are always, in some way, they're kind of struggles between two opposites that you find a synthesis between them. And for me, this walk just physically physically performs that for me in my mind so that I'm, I'm addicted now to that moment where the three forces of water meet and it feels as if if I can do this walk I can get through any poem and reach, reach its ending uh, This is an incredibly picturesque landscape looking at the kind of green fields and the hills it's a sort of it's a kind of butter packet. I try to escape skin. from that. I'm very I'm terrified of the butter packet. So how do you deal with the butter packet problem? I'm just continually smashing down the nostalgia in my head <laughs> and trying to inquire of the landscape itself what it feels about itself rather than bringing my you know, advertising skills or my um, you know, getting rid of words like picturesque or... What are the words I hate? There's a whole kind of range of words that people nowadays use about landscape, like pastoral, um, idyll, can't stand. I quite like taking the names away from things and seeing what they are behind their names. So this might seem like the Harborn River, but it's really a sort of weird, abstract, alien stuff called water that is, you know, doing what water does. And so I... I just exert incredible amounts of energy in trying to see things from their own point of view rather than the human point of view. I really like the idea of you smashing down the picturesque in your head because I like the intellectual ambition of it. There's this 200 years of history <laughs> that you've inherited, which is all about the picturesque. Yeah, and I, and I like the friction that that means there's nothing relaxing about writing a poem. I've got to, I've got to sort of smash down these things before I get anywhere. And I, it's in every aspect of my life. So I'm just, I can't afford to relax in any area. And I, I really like that idea, which is that what you're describing is so far from peaceful. And as you say, you know, this kind of pastoral, rural idyll, now I've used all three of the words you hate, yes. <laughs> is that, of course, that's, that's the kind of escapist fantasy of a largely urban nature nation, you know, with the British have been not just urban but privileged and rich i mean peace was quite often bought at the expense of smashing up some other part of the world and these beautiful kind of rich rolling estates that we think of as the english countryside are quite often based on illegal activities of some kind piracy sugar plantations or uh, slavery tobacco um so i don't think one should lose sight of that for one moment also the whole energy of the people who've lived here struggled to get a living out of the land fished and you know i'm much more interested in those kind of those democratic stories of Mm. the people underneath and the hardship and the the hardship and the hardship now of a blackbird looking for food in the winter or the oysters or the whatever it might be that's in this landscape you've still got that hardship going on the struggle of a tree trying to grow out of stones and this one's collapsed here you can see it's got a kind of broken elbow so yeah I'm, I'm always looking out for that struggle so that's why I'm, I'm allergic to any kind of peace really <laughs> to I peace. like this restless landscape I like it I, I like that the fact that it won't let you sit back and 
say what a beautiful place I've arrived in. Because you've never arrived, it's moving past you all the time. Two places I've seen eels, bright whips of flow, like stopper waves the river curve slides through. Trampling around, at first you just make out the elva movement of the running sunlight. Three foot under the road judder, you hold and breathe contracted to an eye-quiet world, while an old dandelion unpicks her shawl, and one by one the small, spent oak flowers fall. Then gently lift a branch, brown tag and fur on every stone and straw and drifting burr, when, like a streamer from your own eyes, Iris, a kingfisher spurts through the bridge whose axis is endlessly in motion as each wave photos its flowing to the bridge's curve. If you can keep your foothold snooping down, then suddenly two eels let go, get thrown, tumbling away downstream, looping and linking. Another time, we scooped a net through sinking silt and gold and caught one strong as bike chain, stared for a while, then let it back again. I never pass that place and not make time to see if there's an eel come up the stream. I let time go as slow as moss. I stand and try to get the dragonflies to land their gypsy-coloured engines on my hand. We've just walked, I think, in fact, as we walked down here, I thought, I think this is probably the prettiest path I've ever been <laughs> Pretty, on. Pretty, I'm afraid, you see that? Yeah, that's another word I won't allow in my... In my... <laughs> You're sounding very dictatorial. I know, I'm <laughs> extremely dictatorial. And, and it's because I have to fight it in myself. So, yes, we were walking through stitchwort, wild garlic, campion, bluebells, buttercups, the most extraordinary colours... But I, ha- I have to force my eye behind the flower. That's what I, I have this exercise where I force myself to look out from the flower's point of view at these great kind of walloping humans coming down and try and just, just try and feel it from their point of view because it's a different world to them. It's a fascinating, hard world for a weed. This is, the, this is the hardest bit of the walk you have to duck under here. I hope you don't mind. Just in case you're wondering. I love that, where the cows are just going along under there. But I don't like it in a butter packet way. <laughs> I mean, you say I'm... Yes, about it, but I think you sort of have to be. You know, we're, we're in the most extraordinary moment, and I don't think you can afford. I really don't think we can afford to be complacent. And I think it is a kind of day-long effort to to get your mind into the right position to actually live and speak well. Really. Yeah, and no, I'm very struck by your fierceness. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's meant as a compliment rather than right. anything else. Um, because the interesting thing is how much the, the sort of the idyllic romanticisation is probably, you know, one of the most kind of powerful ways of trying to 
engage people in the kind of environmental crisis that you're referring to, I presume. And what you're saying is that that's fundamentally sort of dishonest. I think it's it's wrong and it's dangerous. Um, I really like the writer Slavoj Žižek, who's this Czech philosopher, mm. who I think is brilliant on that. He says, um, you know, we're, we're we're encouraged to try and get at one with nature and to go out and sort of um, see its beauty and feel connected. And he says, actually, it's the most alien, fragile extraordinary thing that we have and, and I love that I love you, you can't predict you can, you know you you look at this river it could do anything and it's that fact of the sort of terrifying otherness of nature that I think we need to grasp hold of and be more courageous in our ways of living with it and seeing it always look better over the water and I've been longing to get to that field so this summer in the rowing boat I'm going to go over there quite a lot it just looks it looks like that's where perfection is isn't it always somewhere where it's quite hard to get it's to exactly yeah so once I can row there I probably won't like it so much but I do love but that it's field. the swoop of that hill it's beautiful it's absolutely gorgeous and the, and the mature trees right down at the water's edge yeah it's, it's funny because I don't know this landscape I find it actually all quite sort of, it, it, it's sort of dancing all around me, all these bodies of water right. from all these different it's directions now. It's very mobile. You've got, <laughs> yeah, you've got tide coming in, dart coming down, harbour coming down. So you have actually got three different, three different directions and, and it's like, I mean, in ancient times, a three-way crossways was a pretty extraordinary thing. You had all sorts of goddesses and spirits that haunted such places so I do think this is a very a very alive place here so this is where I slept out and it's lovely because the tide in the middle of the night suddenly you've got the tide just whispering right up close to you but when I woke in the morning I could hear this extraordinary sound in my ear as if my entire brain was being slowly eaten from the inside I realised something had crawled into my ear and I thought well I won't panic I could see in the bank that I was sleeping next to a series of holes. And I thought, well, I'll just watch one of these holes to see what comes out, and then I'll know what's in my ear. And so I watched these holes for quite a long time, and then out of one came this sort of monstrous, scorpion-like earwig devastation of a creature. And I did then think, oh, my God, I really don't like this. So I started really shaking my head and trying to get out whatever was in there. And this tiny little speck of a bug fell out which had just been walking over my eardrum, making a real din. And uh, so that was that, really. But I was very happy to think that as I was lying there, something had mistaken me for part of the bank and just crawled inside me. That's the lovely thing about sleeping outside, is you become invisible to creatures, so they come quite close to you. I suppose I've now been living by the dart for 15 years, all the way and have written, I think, some very different things based around that. And I like the way that you sort of... You can't capture a place. It, it sort of approaches you slowly and uncovers all its different layers so that the first time, you, the first time I saw this river, I 
was writing Dart, and then I've each book I've written has been a different approach to the river, responding to something different about it. And that, to me, does reflect something of what I'd like to feel is that my relationship with this place is in an unfinished state. I, I'm never, I'm never going to capture it. I'm never going to say everything that could be said about it. And so every year, as my mind changes, I find something, I find out something different about the place. So I like to think that maybe after, you know, 30 years, I might have nearly got down to the secret of this place. But there's no one single work that will sort of sum up a place and then you move on and go somewhere else. I like the idea of just going on, digging deeper. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.